Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've forgotten, it's been a while. The last uh, three weeks, we've, we've taken a break out of Romans. We've had some Tyler preached and then a few guest preachers, and we're back in Romans this morning. So if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 34. As you're finding Romans 8, 31 through 34, let me mention that this morning, unusually for, for the middle of the month like this, we're going to be receiving communion. Generally, it's our, our custom to receive communion on the first Sunday of the month, but we're doing it this Sunday because for the last two Sundays we've had some guest preachers. First, uh, Gareth Franks from the United Arab Emirates, and then last week, Raphael Kajubi from Uganda. And so this morning, we're going to receive communion together as a faith family. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to this table with us. If you're not a believer, We don't want you to get caught up in Christian tradition or something that you don't understand. The Lord's Supper, coming together to remember what Jesus has done on the cross, his broken body and his blood that was spilled for us, is something that Christians have been regularly doing for centuries as a way of remembering the greatest truth in the universe, the gospel itself. And so we don't want you to do that if you don't believe it. We we don't want you to... Uh, to just sort of haphazardly participate in something that you're not fully trusting in. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to this table. And we're going to do that after we look at this text this morning. So I'm going to read verses 31 through 34. And then we're going to look at three truths that I think we can stake our lives on in this text. Now verses 31 through 39, the last paragraph of Romans 8, I think are are some of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. I know I say that a lot, and it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. I get it. But we're talking about apples and oranges here. This is the Bible, okay? So all of it's awesome, but Romans 8, come on now. And verses 31 through 39 are are a kind of crescendo. It's like the peak of Mount Everest. And what verses 31 through 39 are, it's Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is how the whole Bible is written. That's why we believe that the Bible is breathed out by God, mediated through human personality, but superintended by the Spirit of God to bring about perfectly what God intends to be written down. So therefore, it is authoritative meaning it has all authority in our lives. It is inerrant, meaning it's without error. And it is infallible, meaning that it cannot go wrong in anything that it speaks to. It's inspired by God. It's good for us. It's profitable. And the same Holy Spirit that inspired this whole Bible is inspiring Paul in verses 31 through 39 to burst out in a a kind of waterfall of consequences of the gospel that he's been establishing in chapters 1 through 8. And so verses 31 through 39, these next two weeks that we're going to work through, are kind of like standing underneath a waterfall of the consequences of the gospel. 
And he does that really by asking four or five questions that are really rhetorical questions. And we're going to handle, look at four of them today. And we're going to end next week with verses 35 through 39 by looking at the doctrine of perseverance, the eternal security of the saints. But let me read verses 31 through 34 first and then pray. Friends, we're, we're up high. We're, 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 we're at the mountain peak right now in verse 31. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, let's stop there and pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, because you are my rock and my redeemer. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. I want to hide behind this word. I don't want to do anything that would distract these dear ones. Make Jesus huge in our hearts. For my brothers and sisters that believe in him, Lord, clear the fog off of the windshields of our hearts so that we can see him more clearly and follow him more passionately and obey him more. And for my friends that are in this room that do not know him, Lord, I plead with you that you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe in Christ, which is their only hope. I pray this all for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. I see three truths. Well, I see many truths in this, but for the sake of getting through this in one day in a time that you would be acceptably willing to listen to me, I've got three truths. The first is this, and it comes from verse 31, and it is that God's purposes for us cannot be thwarted. Now, now I say for us, and, I, and I've I've titled these three truths for the Christian intentionally that these are not just general truths that apply to everybody because they're in the Bible. There's a very specific group of people in mind here and we see that in the preceding text that we went over a few weeks ago where he says in verse 28, 29, and 30 that there is a those, there's a particular group of people that God has promised, those that he's foreknown and predestined and justified and glorified, he promises that everything will work for their good in their lives. And so here, as a response to that, in verse 31, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Look at that phrase, these things. What are the these things that Paul is now responding to, that he's, he's concluding, he's, he's about to unleash, uh, uh, again, a waterfall of consequences because of these things. So what are these things? Well, I think most, most, most eminently, these things are what he's just said in verses 28, 29, and 30. 
that there is a group of people that God has foreloved, he's predetermined where they will end up, he's justified them, and he has past tense glorified them, and he's promised that everything that happens, all things, tragedy and triumph in their life will somehow serve their good. And so as a response, as a, as a kind of consequence to that massively comprehensive, exhaustive statement that he's made in verses 28, 29, and 30, he says then, if that's the case, then if God is for his people, for those who trust in his name, those whom he's made alive, who can be against us? It's not, this is not what verse 31 is saying, it's not saying that we don't have enemies, we do, both physical and spiritual. In fact, the Bible is full of clear recognitions of our enemies. There's, there's a text in Luke 22, I think, where, where towards the end of Jesus' life, Jesus is, is approaching the cross, and he says to one of his closest disciples, Peter, I believe it is, he says, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. In, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, the, the Apostle Peter, who is the same one who Jesus just said that to, then years later as he's writing this epistle to the church, he says that we, we have an adversary that's like a lion prowling about seeking whom he may devour. And God intended for that to be preserved in his word because not only does Satan desire to sift Peter as wheat, but Peter recognizes that this is, in a sense, a reality for all Christians. We, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. Friends, there's a war raging on, and you have more enemies than you realize. But in light of everything that Paul has been laying down, compared to that, Paul is saying that there's nothing they can ultimately, finally, eternally do to you. That's, his that's the consequence of the gospel. God's purposes for us cannot be thwarted. So before we move on to the second truth, just, just I, I think we all have probably, those of us that have been around the Bible for a while, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, hopefully that's not the first time that you've heard that truth. But friends, I think, I think this is something that I just noticed in my heart as I was meditating on this verse this week, that there is often a gap between what I know to be true from the Bible and what the subjective reality of kind of my experience is. Does anybody, does anybody else feel that gap? Or am I like the only weak Christian here? Is this a safe place for me to be honest? <laughs> There's this truth. I mean, friends, the oxygen is thin in Romans 8. It's so high. This place is so high. If God is for us, who can be against us? But friends, I, I confess I don't often feel that way in my regular life, right? And so what, what, how does this help us? Why is keeping this at the forefront of our minds so important? Let me just ask you a, a question right now. This is not a promise that says that we will be trouble-free in 
this life. This, this truth should not cause us to sink back into a, a kind of fatalistic acceptance of things as if, well, you know, this is just reality. God's in control and what's going to happen to me is what's going to happen to me. No, that's not how the Bible speaks about God's utter sovereignty in the life of a Christian. When we truly understand it, what God's utter Complete, exhaustive providence should produce in us is a kind of anchor that holds us as we fight forward becoming the people who he has guaranteed that we will become. Think of it this way. It's it's like if if you're ever trying to push against something that's pushing at you, imagine yourself in an open field just kind of playing just a big pushing game. But then imagine if you were backed up against the strongest stone wall and you had the leverage to plant yourself against that thing and push. When you have the force of this immovable object behind you, you are able to have leverage and push against whatever is pushing against you. And that's what this text is doing. The way God works out his guarantee in the life of those whom he's foreknown, foreloved, predetermined, justified, and past tense glorified is he in time causes them to fight for that place that he will bring them to outside of time forever and ever and ever. And that, that's, that's the truth That's the consequence of the gospel. Listen to me, dear friend. Even when we don't feel like it, and I just confess, most of the time, I don't feel like it. And that's why I need to gather with you guys. That's why I need you, man. That's why you need the church, Christian, because it's like being hooked up to the circulatory system of the Holy Spirit. Limbs can't live without blood, and Christians can't live without the body. I didn't intend to say that. I just think that was for somebody who has not prioritized life in the local church. Amen. (laughs) Verse 32. He who did not spare... So so here's another question. The first question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? It's not that we don't have enemies, but in light of all that God has done, he's guaranteeing that his purposes will not be thwarted Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Which leads us to the second truth that I I want us to to dwell on here that I think is, is what verse 32 is all about. And it is this, that only God can satisfy Only God can satisfy. Now, I think that there's two aspects that I want you to see here in what I'm trying to communicate from this text when I say only God can satisfy. In one sense, most primarily, first, only God can satisfy, and this is the most important sense of of God satisfying, only God can satisfy the requirements of his righteousness and his justice which is against us in our natural state. Here's the the argument of Romans. Romans is really Paul's defense of God's righteousness. He's defending God against the charge that how could God be holy and let anybody, any of us wretched sinners, into his presence in eternity? And it's Paul 
vindicating that no, 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 if you understand the gospel, you'll see that God actually can and does maintain his righteousness while still allowing us to draw near to him even though we have no right to do so. And how does he do that? Well, that's the whole gospel. We are sinners separated from God. How can unholy, unrighteous sinners like us ever be reconciled with a holy God? And how can God stay just? Because you see the dilemma? If God were to bring these filthy sinners like us close to himself, that that would impugn, that would, that would soil his righteousness. So how will this gap be bridged. It's through Christ who becomes the one mediator between the filthy sinners and the holy God. He becomes a man just like us who is without sin and he can identify with us but he's still fully God so he bridges the gap and then this is the essence of the gospel. Lays down his perfect life on the cross to absorb the punishment that should have been ours. So now God has not fudged. He's not grading on a curve. A perfect score is still required. But Jesus substitute himself, takes the test for us, scores a hundred, and gives us his grade. So God is still holy. He's still righteous. He hasn't fudged one iota. But because of the grace of the gospel, filthy sinners are now transformed, justified, counted as righteous, made holy by Jesus' work on the cross. So not only does he take our wrath from us that was ours from God, but he gives us his righteousness. And so in, in the first sense only, friends, that's what verse 32 is primarily saying, that God did not spare his own son but he gave him up for us all. So do you see, do you see our ultimate problem, our, our biggest issue is not, not the enemies that we talked about in verse 31 that are against us. Our biggest problem is not ultimately Satan or any force of hell or any political power or any terrorist in the Middle East or any sickness or any financial woe, friends, our biggest problem is actually God. We've committed treason against our creator and he's the biggest issue that we need to deal with. And what Paul is saying here is that the good news of the gospel is that God has reconciled us to himself through his son. His holiness remains intact. His righteousness has been satisfied by Jesus. And his, the righteousness of Jesus has been given to us. Now, our greatest, our greatest concern, God's justice and wrath, has been satisfied. We sing that song in Christ alone. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Friends, there's no sweeter truth in the gospel. But secondly, in light of that, Notice Paul's logic here. He says he gave his son, he didn't spare his son, the most infinitely worthy object and treasure in all the universe. So as a consequent second half of verse 32, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Now friends, if this were the only verse in the Bible, then I think that the name it and claim it Prosperity gospel preachers might, might be onto something. 
But this isn't the only verse in the Bible about what life is all about. And so clearly when he says that he will give us all things in light of what he's given us in Christ, he's not talking merely about earthly riches. Do you see that? But he will satisfy us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23 says. Paul here is arguing from the the greater to the lesser. If he's given us Christ, how will he not also give us all things? In other words, things that are truly important. Things that we truly need and ultimately himself for eternity. So how does this truth, how does this help us in our daily lives? How should this truth work itself out in our hearts? Because again, isn't the air thin up here? I mean, he will give us all things, but man, Tuesday morning is a drudge. (laughs) Almost got in trouble. And so how does this work itself out, this consequence of the gospel? Friends, we are a generation and a culture that is particularly prone to covetousness. We are, most of us anyway, Americans, and we've been taught that success is dying with the most toys. And, you know, hey, we're good Christians. We would never actually say that, right? But that little idol lurks in our hearts because we're more sophisticated and we know that to actually say that is heresy. And so we massage and camouflage that idol of covetousness in our hearts and we hide it. We have, at least most of us, had this feeding tube attached to our spiritual stomachs and it nourishes this idol of covetousness. And for many of us, that feeding tube is this culture of comparison which social media and all the things that it can do that are good and helpful and spread the gospel, it also has served to just put this feeding tube of idolatry and covetousness in our spirits on blast. And we sit behind our screens and we hit like over our friends' and neighbors' photos but we secretly despise them because their spouses and their children's and their houses are all bigger and prettier and more awesome than ours. And like that author said, his name escapes me now, we are like most men who lead lives of quiet desperation. And that desperation is that we are unsatisfied with the life God has given us. Friends, how do we combat this covetousness? Am I I talking to anybody right now or am I just having kind of a self-help session up here? What can we do? How, How can we fight this? The first thing we need to do is just recognize it and repent of it. As we look at verse 32... Let's not, let's not just let verse 32 apply to the false prosperity gospel preachers on TV. Oh, of course. Of course that's not talking about Cadillacs and jets and jewelry. But friends, we, we have our own little hidden idols, don't we? We want a comfortable life. We want obedient children. 
We want, we want everything to go well for us. And what do we do when we see that in our hearts, friends? We recognize it. We repent of it. And as we look at verse 32, I think what we need to do in our lives, just some practical spiritual help for fighting this, this idol, idol of covetousness in our own hearts, is recognize it, confess it to God, and repent of it right now. Even right now, Lord, uh, I, I repent of my covetousness, and I repent of the fact that ultimately every time I look at other people's lives, what I'm doing in my heart of hearts is shaking my fist at you mad because my life isn't like theirs. Right now, dear friends, be, before you come to this table, confess that to the Lord, repent of it, and confess the truth of the scripture that God is for you, dear one. He who gave Christ for you, how will he not also give you all things? And here's what I need to do in my heart. This is this is something that I think about, not, not always successfully, but I think about when I'm when I'm jealous. When I'm jealous of some person or something or some ministry, and oh gosh, that happens more often than I, I, I care to admit. I think about, Lord, help me see that you're good to me. And maybe by not giving me that thing that I really, really want, you're actually protecting me. You're actually, you're actually preventing me from worshiping that thing. You, 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 see, you see the logic there? Some of you are mad because, you know, you don't have a boyfriend or a spouse. Or because you're not as cute as your friend. Dear one, do you realize that you're, it may be God's grace that he didn't make you charismatic or cute or smart or successful? Do you realize that may be God's grace in your life? Because if he gave you over to that thing, maybe that thing would actually become your functional God. John Newton, the, the great hymn writer, he was a slave trader, a wicked man, and God radically saved him, and then he became a pastor in England and a proponent of, of the abolition movement and a wonderful pastor and hymn writer. And he said this, he said, everything is needful that he sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Friends, right now, let's just, let's just gosh, there's a, isn't there a gap? Isn't there a gap between this truth and, and how we feel? But let's confess, Lord. Let's just confess along with our brother Newton that, Lord, whatever I need, you give me. And what you don't give me, I don't need. And that's, that's true because of verse 32. How will he not also give you all things? Oh, Amen. Lord, help me. <laughs> Help me, help me believe this more. Only God can satisfy. All right, let's keep going. Verses 33 and 34. Oh, the air is so thin and so rich up here. Listen to verse 33. Another rhetorical question. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Okay, well, you know, we all get charged with stuff all the time. I mean, the rap, if we could pull back the curtain and look at the, the actual true charges against everybody in this room, our spiritual rap sheets would be a mile long. It's not that there aren't any charges against us. It's that God has taken care of them in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. You know, I have this strange little habit um, I, every Tuesday, which is the day I think it actually gets published online in the Columbus Ledger, I look at the crime photos. Does anybody else do that? I look at the DUI and felony arrests. So if, you, if you're ever in that paper, friends, your pastor's going to see you. Because <laughs> I look at every photo. I do. I don't know what it is. I just look at every photo. And I, I just pray. I just think about there but for the grace of God go I. Then I just look at these faces and I just say, this was somebody's little boy or little girl. And it just kind of sobers me to the reality of the way most of the world lives. And friends, every charge that's against those people oftentimes is true. Just like the charges against us are true. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If... If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So so before we get all excited about the the beauty of justification, let's, let's let it work humility in us. Lord, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, there's a whole bunch of charges against me, but that word elect is so powerful. It means that God, not because of anything good in us and not because of anything too bad in us, God has chosen us. He's foreknown us, he's predestined us, and he's justified, and he is past tense glorified. So therefore, in light of what God has done to justify his people, which is to give the matchless worth of the life of his son and guarantee that he will bring them safely home, who, rhetorical question, shall bring any charge against God's chosen people? And he he amplifies this in verse 34. Look at it. Friends, verse 34 should be required memorization for all Christians. You have to do this. Come on now. Memorize verse 34. In fact, let's just make that part of, like, when I was a plebe at the United States Military Academy, um, you had all of this required knowledge that you had to memorize, like quotes from MacArthur and all of these dead generals. And that was 1989, which is... 29 years ago, and I still remember them because what would happen is when you're walking around during the day between classes, an upper class cadet could stop you and say, Cadet Evangelista, tell me Schofield's definition of discipline. Sir, Schofield's definition of discipline, the discipline which makes the soldiers of a free country reliable in battle is not to be gained by harsh or tyrannical treatment. Such treatment is far more likely to dissuade rather than to persuade soldiers. And it goes on and on and on. New cadet evangelists to start the core. Sir, the core, the core, the core, the core, the core bareheaded saluted with eyes up thanking our God that we of the core are treading where they of the core have trod. MacArthur's 
Last words to the core in March 1963. Duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you can be, what you should be, what you ought to be. I remember those things and it's been 30 years. Let's make 34, verse 34, required knowledge at cross point where we can stop each other in the hallway and say, Christian, recite verse 34. (laughs) I think I've just given some of you guys license to really bring out your inner drill sergeant. I'm sorry for that. Listen to verse 34. It's, friends, this verse 34 is a pot of spiritual gold. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's, let's, no, no. Let's look at that carefully. The first thing. Who's to condemn? Okay, what is his answer to that question? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That means the God-man. Christ, the infinite, holy, second person of the Trinity, became a man. Jesus, who has no beginning and no end, no end to his holiness. God, this is the greatest mystery in all of the scriptures, the incarnation of Christ the Son, Man, he became a man, and he died for us. He died for us. And when he died for us, he, as Colossians 2 says, took away the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He canceled all of the charges against God's elect because it is the Son of God taking the punishment for the people of God and nullifying their sentence. Christ Jesus died. But it's not just that. More than that, next phrase, he was raised. So death did not defeat him. He rose again, conquering death, sin, and the grave. And now because he's alive, he has the keys to life, and he gives them to his people. So now Jesus has been justified by the Father through his resurrection, and now those of us that are in him through faith, we rise with him. He's risen. He was dead, but he was made alive by the power of God who vindicated his perfect life. But it's not just that he died and was raised. It gets even better. He is at the right hand of God. What's the significance of that phrase, to be at the right hand of God? The significance is that it, it, biblically, the right hand of God, to be seated at the right hand of God, is to signify the completion, the finality, the finished work being accomplished by the Son. In other words, salvation has been accomplished. It's not just merely been made possible. It's been actually accomplished by Jesus. There's nothing more to be done to ransom his people, to make them alive, to atone for their sins, to regenerate them, to redeem them. Jesus has done it. It's finished. He's seated at the right hand of God. It's accomplished. There's, there's no amount of good works that you can add to anything that Jesus has done that will make 
you more acceptable to God. There's nothing that you can do that will make you more, if you're in Christ, loved by God. There's nothing that you can do, even in periods of disobedience, that will make you unloved by God because your salvation, if you're in Christ, is finished. And seeing that rightly, and this is the point of Romans 6 that we took about a month to go through, Weeks ago, seeing that rightly, when we see it rightly, doesn't allow us to fall back into sin, but it, because of what Christ has done through no work of our own, empowers us to actually obey him in works of obedience. But our salvation is finished. But that's not all there is to it. It says here in this last part of verse 34 that he now, even though our salvation is finished, is presently interceding for us. <laughs> Remember this gap? So all these things are true. This, the, all these things are true. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's true. It's at the peak of the mountaintop of the gospel, beautiful chain of Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? That's true. We have all things. Everything's ours. Everything that we need, heaven's ours. Who will bring any charge against God's left? There's nothing, no, there's no charge will stick against me because Jesus has taken care of it all, but yet I still feel guilty on Thursday. Now who's to condemn? Who, you know, that's true, but there's a gap between the reality of the truth of the Bible and my shifting subjective experience that I still must live in this earth. And what is the end of verse 34 saying? It's saying that Jesus is interceding for us. In other words, Jesus is standing in the gap between the truth of the gospel and the reality of what we feel on a weekly basis. And he's praying, and Jesus' prayers are always answered. He's praying for what is true, eternally, biblically, to be worked in, to have its final, full completion in our life. Jesus, and this is the third truth, Jesus is standing in the gap for his people. Some of you that maybe grew up in a, in a charismatic sort of Pentecostal church where they had tambourines and laps around the sanctuary, which, I mean... I have some problems with Pentecostal theology, but I like the way they worship God. We could use a little bit of that. Don't bring your tambourines, but get excited. Right? Let's, Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theologians of all time, spoke about religious affections, about how the good doctrine should produce good doxology, about how the truth of the gospel should produce passionate worship in us. Amen? Where was I going with that? Oh. The point is, is that if you grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal church, you probably heard this phrase, I'm standing in the gap for you, brother. Did you ever hear that? I'm standing in the gap, meaning I'm going to pray for you. I'm standing in the gap. I'm standing in the gap. And that comes from a phrase in Ezekiel chapter 22. We won't take the time to read it, but in Ezekiel chapter 22, at the end of that chapter, the Lord says, as he's looking at his, his disobedient people, who he's been warning that if they do not turn from their disobedience to him, he's going to bring the Babylonians to take them away to captivity. He's going to punish them through the hands of a foreign enemy. And he says at the end of verse 22, or chapter 22 of Ezekiel, he says, I looked to and fro for somebody that would stand in the gap between the wall 
to build up the wall. In other words, somebody that would intercede, somebody that would represent me to the people and the people to me. I look for somebody that would be a go-between between my holiness and, and the unholiness of my people in their lack of sanctific- sanctification. He says, I couldn't find anybody. I couldn't find anybody, and so I'm now going to bring my punishment. But what we see here in Romans 8 is the good news of the gospel is that Jesus intercedes for his people. Where we can't intercede for ourselves, Jesus does intercede for his people. And so when God looks over your week and your Tuesday does not match up to Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39, he looks to see who will stand in the gap. And there at his right hand is Jesus standing in the gap for you. If that's the case, what can man do to me? Listen to this confession of the ancient church, the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 49 speaks about Jesus' present ministry for you. The question is, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, He pleads our case in heaven in the presence of his Father. Presently, he's doing that. Present tense, interceding. That means that even when our own hearts want to condemn us before the heavenly court of God, there's a rap sheet a mile long. There's a devil that wants to accuse us. And Jesus is there as every charge is brought against you, whether it's by your own heart or some demon in hell, and it's saying this person is weak, they're disobedient again, they're lustful, they're sinful, and Jesus, as he is at the right hand of his father, is saying it's paid for, he's justified, he's ours. That's, That's the picture. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. He's interceding for us. And there's coming a day when God the Father will send the Son back and he will bring us to himself and he will bring all of his people safely home and he has guaranteed that he will do that. And third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee By the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, seated at God's right hand. So do you remember verse 26 where it says that when we're weak, the Spirit of God that lives in us and indwells us, that's a big part of Romans chapter 8, makes intercession for us. So get a picture of what's going on in your life if you're a believer. There's this truth of the gospel and all of these consequences in your life. And there's this reality where you don't necessarily feel like all these things are actually true in your life. And what Romans 8 is telling you is that the Spirit of God is in you making intercession for you. And the Son of God is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. And so you have the Trinity having a kind of fellowship party on your behalf if you're a believer. Now, if that doesn't send you into Tuesday with your, with your fists tight, throwing punches, I don't know what will. If God is for us, who can be against us? And dear friends, that fight is not often external. It's internal, isn't it?
It's residual sin that needs to be brought under the power of Romans 8, 31 through 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us even now. Let's pray. Father, as we come around this table, as we remember the gospel, oh, dear Lord, put steel in our spines. The air we breathe down here in this life is polluted with the residue of this world. It's full of toxic gases, spiritual carbon monoxide that threatens to choke us out. But the air of Romans 8 is rich with gospel oxygen. May we breathe this air in this morning as we remember the gospel, as we remember what Jesus has done, as we take this bread and drink this cup. And may you strengthen your people and open the eyes of the blind. In Jesus' name.